This talk was recorded by Insight Meditation South Bay in Mountain View, California. For more talks and information, visit www.imsb.org. So I have a great topic working with psychological obstacles. That's wide open. That's what Buddhism is all about, right? Working with suffering, letting go of suffering, figuring out how to live with this and reducing, reducing the difficulties. And maybe finding some more appreciation for our life as we walk this path. So I have some ideas, and I hope they're helpful. But I first just want to talk a little bit about the fundamental practice, just as a backdrop for these other practices. Um, So when I first started practicing, I thought the effort was to go to my breath be with my body, be with my posture. And if thoughts would come in, I would go back to the breath, back to the body. Very directed, very concentrated, focused. But now, my effort, my understanding of effort over the years has kind of done a 180 degree change. Now I think of effort as almost no effort at all. More like allowing awareness to come into being. Kind of like a a good metaphor would be of a massage. So we're having a massage we feel the sensations and we feel the energy move and we're enjoying the massage or at least benefiting from the massage but we we want to be there for the massage our intention is to be there for the massage or listening to music we want to hear the sounds so our intention is to hear the sounds and it's inevitable that our mind drifts off, the causes and conditions of the day come come in and we just kind of go off. But we don't want to be off. We don't want to be involved in that thinking reality. We want to be here because we want to enjoy our massage. So we keep coming back to the massage. It's what we want. It's our intention. So we relax and we let the massage happen to us. We let the music come in. We let the sights of nature come in. We let the tastes come in. So that's kind of how I think of effort now is relaxing and letting it all letting it all come in. But it never works. <laughs> I heard someone say once that nobody can meditate. 
So it never works, and it never will work. We'll always drift off, and we'll always come back, probably, as long as we live. Maybe even as we're dying. But the main, the main thing that we can plight our trough in is our intention. We want to be here for the massage of the present moment. That's our abiding intention. That's our refuge. That gives coherence to our lives, that intention. Not the virtual realities that we dream up, we don't take refuge in that story or that story or that story. All those me's that keep presenting themselves very compelling, all these me's. They feel so much like me. We've been practicing those stories all of our lives. There's a phrase, neurological pathways. That we develop these neurological pathways when we're very young. And we keep replaying them over and over again and very with with variations that are applicable to the causes and conditions of our life at at the time. And it's comfortable. It feels so comfortable, even if it involves a tight chest and uh, dark thoughts and sadness or whatever. It feels so much like me. intention is not to take refuge in me even though that keeps coming back and keeps coming back and keeps coming back and it's so compelling it feels so real but our intention is to be here our intention is to be aware Suzuki Roshi would talk about three different kinds of Buddhas. And this is in the sutras, I don't know which sutra, but there's the, there's the Nirmanakaya Buddha. And the Nirmanakaya Buddha is this Buddha body. You are all Nirmanakaya Buddha. And there's Sambhogakaya Buddha, which uh, Zen is kind of magical. And um, so he would describe the Sambhogakaya Buddha as it's always been here. It's eternal. It's the body that is bound, has no boundaries, has no time. It, is, it sounds like God and it sounds theistic. But rather than getting too conflicted about that, that just our experience of that, our experience of a bigger body, an awareness body. And I think we get some, we have some experience with that body the first time we meditate. And that's what draws us in. And that's what sustains us. That's what feels like real home, 
even though we're really intimate with our neurological pathways and the identities that those present to us, day by day, they come up. When you think about it, we're much more intimate with Sambhogakaya body. That's really our, who we are, which is nothing, but it's everything, boundaryless and here. So this is our fundamental practice, our intention that permeates our life to come back to here. Ajahn Sumedho told uh, about a venerable teacher who was dying in Thailand. And he wanted to go and pay respects before this teacher died. So he got there and he went to the teacher's kuti, was lying there dying. And the teacher weakly, weakly motioned for him to lean down so Ajahn Sumedho could hear something from his lips. And his utterance was, be here. At the Zen Center, we didn't use the word awareness so much. It was more like, wake up. Same kind of thing, but a little bit different slant. And I remember, well, the students that were practicing would, uh, each student would at some time be assigned to carry the kiyosaku. The kiyosaku is this stick, and it's called the stick of compassion. And we would um, slowly, mindfully walk around the zendo, walk among all the students that were sitting. And if someone was nodding off, we would tap them on the shoulder. They would bow, and we would give them a whack on that shoulder. And you'd bend over, and then you would bend over to the other shoulder, and you get a whack on the other shoulder. And it made quite a loud sound, and it did wake you up. It kind of had a, um, gave a little shot, but it didn't hurt. So, um, but I, I have this indelible memory of Suzuki Roshi, who was a very little guy and quite frail, quite old, of sitting uh, with him, and clearly that it was, it was a sleepy time in the zendo, and he would, faster than lightning, he would jump off of his tongue with his kiyosaku, and he would go, bam, 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 all through the zendo, there were 65 of us sitting in there. And it was like, it was like thunder cracks. And it happened so fast. It was really magic. And he was done quicker. You know, it, was, it was like it was over. 130 hits was over in no time at all. It was, it was an amazing experience. I know that my eyes would well up with tears 
at his generosity, at his compassion. He just wanted us to wake up. I have a friend who's a, a Korean um, a Zen master, and in their tradition, in his tradition, he also emphasizes waking up. And he uses the practice of smashing his hand really loudly on the floor when talking to a student. I remember being screamed at in Tokusan. That was the whole message, just a scream. However, that's not our Vipassana practice. Our Vipassana <laughs> practice, and, and it is inviolable, it's wonderful. Um, our Vipassana practice is, is to, is intention, is to wake up, to be here. and to sustain that and to keep coming back and with a steadiness 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 and Suzuki Roshi used the analogy that when you walk in the fog you don't really notice it but after a while you're all wet So this practice just becomes kind of natural after a while. And we keep, we never do it right, but it's natural. And we can count on the intention. We can count on our refuge. Refuge in Buddha. Awareness. I know Thai monks often use the mantra, Buddha, Buddha as they're doing walking meditation with each step, Buddha, awareness. We take refuge in Dharma, the apparent here and now. We take refuge in Sangha, all of you who are supporting each other with your practice, we're supporting each other to be here, but that's all we want. And we kindly encourage each other to be here. And we come back to the body. It's a body practice. The body is always present. The breath is always present. We can count on the body. We can count on the breath. There's a... um, There's this idea... Maybe true, but it's a lovely idea that to tame a wild elephant, you pair him up with a calm elephant. And the calmness of the calm elephant kind of calms the other one down. And the wild elephant might scratch the ears. I mean, the calm elephant might scratch the ears, get a little carrot or something. Um, but the, the analogy applies to the mind, the wildness of the mind, bringing the wildness of the mind into the calmness of the body. The soft, earthen, receptive body. When Shakyamuni Buddha was uh, enlightened under the Bodhi tree, he touched his hand to the earth. We touch our hands, we touch our awareness 
to our body. So it's our intention to be here and we have all kinds of, you know, as we practice, we, we have all kinds of tricks of the trade about how to be, to be here. We, there are many, many practices besides this fundamental or to, to, uh, to amplify this, our fundamental practice. And I'd like to talk about one, one practice, and I hope this means something to somebody. Uh, it's a little difficult to get across. But um, well, I use the, uh, the um, example of when we're hurt by other people, which is like us. Just about everything that hurts us is other people. Um, There are supposedly uh, eight worldly winds, eight things in life that make us suffer. This is karma. This is, this is the opposite of boundless refuge in Buddha, Dharma and Sangha. This is refuge in these eight, eight, eight um, worldly winds. And six of them involve people. The desire for success. Success in whose eyes? Other people, right? Um, And the fear of failure. The desire for praise, approbation, approval. Basically just being liked. And the fear of rejection, blame, it's really praise and blame are the two words that are used. Doesn't it hurt to be blamed? Nanajan Cha said, you will always be blamed. Can't get away from it. In a week you're going to get blamed at least once, if not more than that. The third one is kind of related to the second one, the, uh, the uh, fear of uh, infamy, of bad reputation, bad reputation with your community, with your colleagues, with your friends, with your family, and desire for fame, desire to be well-known, well-regarded. And the fourth, I think of it as more physical, um, desire for pleasure and fear of pain. So, I think as we go through our day, we get our feelings hurt. I have a friend who has a little boy, a three year old, and they were in a toy store. And the little boy said to his dad, Dad, I want that toy. And his dad looked at him and he said, Well, I'm sorry, you can't have that toy. And the little boy looked up at him again and he said, Dad, you don't understand, I really want that toy. 
And his dad looked down at him again and he said, Honey, I'm sorry, you don't understand. You can't have that toy. And then the son said again, But dad, you don't understand. I really want that toy. And then the dad looked at him and he got it. And he said, okay, now I understand. And he took the son's hand and they walked out of the toy store. <laughs> so kids forget. But we don't forget. We get, we uh, get mad at the dad. We think, this is a terrible dad. He's been, he's, he's being sadistic. He's being abusive. He doesn't like me. He's jealous of me. He's competitive. I'll never be, I'll never get a toy. I'll never be liked by my dad. I'll never be liked by that person or that person. Or I won't be liked by anybody, for that matter. And there's this girl over here. She got the toy. What has she got that I don't have? She has it all. She's going to be liked by everybody. And I'll never be like her. And so forth and so on. So these are the thoughts that escalate the feeling. And it's called the pancha. All these thoughts that... Uh, that um, proliferate and develop and refire the feeling. And then the feeling gets more deeply ingrained and we and then we, and then uh, yeah, and then it fires back into the, the pancha and there's more elaborate thoughts and we go and pretty soon we want to kill ourselves. Actually human beings sometimes kill themselves. This papancha can get so claustrophobic that it seems like there's just absolutely no way out of this and it can be so strong that it overrides the actual human instinct to live. So we have, we're with people all of our lives. And we have problems with people. Things don't. We don't always get praise. We don't always get fame. We don't always get success with people. They don't necessarily want to give us all of that. And they want it for themselves. This is the world of karmic winds. against him, scandalized Buddha. So this isn't just in Mountain View <laughs> in the 21st century. 
this is age old. I think this goes as old. No, no, really old. I mean, it's, it's all over the Bible. I meant to bring a Bible with me because I would sort of underlined a bunch of passages of the Psalms where just these people were so upset about how, I mean, this, this one person was urging God to cut out their nattering tongues. I remember the phrase, I feel so alone. And it was, you know, the Bible was very, very colorful in its language. Norman Fisher translated, he's a Zen teacher, he's a great Zen teacher, and he translated the Psalms, and he didn't hold back with all of the human suffering that was happening in those days that is created through interactions with their communities, with their families, with their spouses, with their friends, with their communities, with fellow workers, with bosses. So, so I had this great topic, psychological obstacles. How do we practice with this, this that comes up? How many of you feel like an outsider sometimes? How many of you feel like you will always be an outsider? You'll never really fit in. And we try so hard to fit in. There might be some brief times of fitting in, and boy, we like that so much, and we want it, want it some more. And the worldly winds just don't work. But we have this, this pain, this um, wound, this ancient wound. And I, I was talking to, uh, or having some communications with a woman who really had despair about her wound. She woke up every morning in depression and she just said, it's never going to go away. This is me. I'm so rutted in this, it's never going to go away. So, I would like to suggest that we feel the pain. So, if, if there are some you know, little irritating things happen, or this or that, you know, goes on, then come back to the body, and it, you know, we, we can live our lives in a rather peaceful, steady, happy way. Just with a fundamental practice of just waking up, coming back into awareness. Um, karma is knocking lightly on our door, but these clouds can dis- disperse. And they disperse much more easily the longer we practice. But sometimes the knocking is very, very loud, and it won't go away. Is that true of some of you? Do you have that experience? So what do we do with that? And I'm suggesting that we feel the feeling. feeling. That we that we take it out of the papancha and we bring it into the feeling. We root ourselves in our bodies but not, but more in our emotional bodies. In the wound, 
in the neurological pathways. And we just stay there. Ajahn Suchito, in his book on Parami, says, it takes great courage to face the flood. When the karmic fires are burning brightly, it just seems hopeless. But I'm suggesting face the flood. Stay with it. Feel the feeling. Be with it. And just through that alone, that effort alone, right then you've transcended it. You're living in a space of transcendence. And in that space of transcendence, in that space of taking refuge in awareness, even though that feeling's going on, you tra- there is no suffering. So this can be a samadhi, the effort to enter into awareness of this pain, the concentration to stay with this pain, to stay with the feeling. I'm not even going to call it pain anymore because that's giving it a label and that's way too much. Staying with the feeling. And then, by having faith in this, in our practice, because we have no choice. It's there. If we want to be here, we have no choice. So we might as well be fully here with it, not just pick and choose when it feels pleasant. Wisdom emerges. And wisdom tells us, this is going to go away. This is not going to last. This is not permanent. We think it's permanent when we're involved with Pancha. But Pancha tells us, this is a permanent state. But in fact, it's not permanent. Whatever was happening to you this morning is far gone now. anything else I can say about that. My teacher, Vika Roshi, always said, turn toward your fear. Turn toward. Don't turn away. Turn toward it. And be with it. So any questions about that? Any discussion about that? There's some. I wanted to also talk about some positive practices, but um, before I leave that, mm-hmm. I wanted to ask about the compassion stick. Um, <clears throat> the often we hear about the five hindrances to meditation: um, sloth and torpor being one of them, and the sleepiness during meditating. Um, is, is, it, is there a cause that is rooted in psychology for, for such a hindrance? Is that related to a psychological obstacle at times? Um, well, I would think so. I would think, you know, that, that we're trying, that there's something that we don't want to face, there's something going on that we don't want to feel, don't want to experience. Our natural state is awake, alert, unless we're sleepy, but if we get enough sleep, or unless there's some physical 
physical problem, some sickness, but other than that, I think our natural state is kind of a, a weakness. Your weakness keeps coming back, asserting itself, coming back. So I think that there's something being buried. It's my my thought in, in sloth and tor- torpor. It's um, I've heard it said that that's one of the most difficult obstacles to uh, overcome. Uh, uh, once uh, you've let go of a significant portion of greed and anger and you fall asleep and that's, that's something that needs to be confronted and dealt with. I don't know if I'm going to catch your phrase correctly, because I think I've already reinterpreted it, but you said an ancient wound or the original wound? I meant in this This lifetime, in this karmic lifetime, yes. Or it could be previous lifetimes. It it caused me to recall, I don't know if I like the the original wounding um, kind of made in context of that sometime after birth where we move from oneness to separateness. And I was wondering if that's where you were coming from. I wasn't really sure... And what you were. I see. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, it could be something. I was thinking more of psychological wounds. So something that may happen from your environment. Like yeah, yeah. In infancy or early Yeah, your, your, your parents, mm-hmm. you know, your siblings, or with school children, or you know, something that would, you know, imbue you with some wound, mm-hmm. some wound, some set of wounds that, that creates. I'm this way. And it could be your praise and you're, you know, you're the most popular kid in, in town and your parents love you and all that stuff and you feel that way. And, that's, and then, but, then you're not really happy until you keep reproducing that. Okay, thank you. Mm-hmm. Ajahn Chah said that monks know that our practice, all monks know that our practice is to let go. But they can't do it 90% of the time. <laughs> so this, you know, this takes patience, just steadiness, staying with, staying with. You don't expect, you don't expect to let go. But the patient, steady practice. When my daughter was a little girl. We, I took her to this to Chuck E. Cheese. Um, and they have all these games. We didn't go for the pizza. We went for the games. And one of the favorite games was um, there was like six frogs, and they would be up there, and you put your quarter in, and then you had soft little soft mallets, and you pound the frog down. And if you pounded the frog down, ding, you got some points. And then, but the frog would pop right back up. So you just ding, 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 those drum frogs kept popping right back up. But, Perhaps the game that was fun. And it reminds me of our effort, you know. Um, we Buddhists are very resilient. We practice awareness. We nourish awareness. And it keeps popping back up. As much as our karma smashes it down, we keep steady, we keep patient, we practice. And our suffering passes, and awareness is here again, and peace is here again, and Happiness is here again. Frogs, by the way, are a symbol of Buddha. 
Can you imagine a frog on a lily pad with its eyes bulging out and hearing everything? Awake, aware, completely awake. So, um, there's some practices that are lovely that can, that can be helpful. I mentioned in the meditation the idea of allowing happiness because happiness, I think, is a natural state. It accompanies a peaceful mind. It accompanies a relaxed mind of awareness. So, you know, awareness can sometimes seem a little sterile. So if we, you know, sometimes think allow happiness or bring happiness, bring that, that thought, maybe like a little mantra, you know, happiness, happiness. It can brighten the mind, it can raise the mind up and encourage us in our practice. And it should be cultivated. If there's some feeling of joy in our practice, that's a good thing. These are boundless qualities. These aren't, these aren't bounded karmic qualities. These are, these are wide open, boundless. Reach, they reach everywhere. Joy. It's called pithy. There's a name for it. And it's, it's a factor of enlightenment. Another, another uh, thought that can be helpful is to reflect on how kind you are. Reflect on the kindnesses that you have done today. So, we often overlook that and we get so caught up in, you know, the negativity. But actually, kindness it's just some kind kind practice that you do. I do hospice chaplain work, as was mentioned. It's kind. I'm kind when I do that. Very kind in that time. Your kindness in a conversation, listening to someone, giving them your attention, being generous, and reflecting on that. Reflecting on how kind you are, how good you are. Making a big deal out of that. Not letting that go unnoticed, but really making a big deal out of that. Bringing it to mind can really ease the heart, relax the heart. It's a beautiful way to live. It's essential in our practice. It's said that the next thing to, the next best thing to being compassionate is to act compassionate. But even that, you know, just if you don't feel like it, just being kind. That's that's our way. That's the way we are. That's the way we speak. That's the way we interact with others with kindness. And then we reflect on that. We even use it as a mantra sometimes. Kindness. Let kindness fill our body. Kindness. Kindness. Without even that reflection. Buddha, 
I reflect on death three times a day. Is that enough? And the Buddha said, well, that's okay. So Ananda got the feeling that that wasn't exactly what the Buddha was thinking. So he asked the Buddha, well, how often should I reflect on death? And the Buddha said, Ananda, you should reflect on death with every in-breath, and you should reflect on death with every out-breath. So that really cuts through the, the chaff and leaves us with what is really important. When we're lying on our deathbed, what's going to help us? Is that person's opinion going to help us? Is that house going to help us? Are any of the material things that we have accumulated that we treasure so much going to help us? Are the roles that we play in our lives, our career role, our family role, our role in our community, in our volunteer work and all the roles that we are any of those going to help us getting down deeper into this are our friends going to help us when we're lying on our deathbed our families are they going to help us so what's going to help us what's really there for us what really matters What's worth, what's worth nurturing in this lifetime? What's really important in this lifetime? Our peace of mind. That's all that we can really count on. There are happiness studies. Stanford, or there's a woman at Stanford that has done a lot of research on happiness, and it's, it's there are a lot of statistics and research about this. And but one thing is shown very clearly is happiness begins at 50. <laughs> there's this kind of arch up on the happiness level from 50 on up. 20s are not a good time for happiness. <laughs> Why? The older we get, how do I want to spend my time? Do I really want to do that? Do I really want to get all involved with that? Do I really want to pursue that? Do I really need to do this and that and go on that trip and get this thing and get this, you know, look this way? Or I mean, who cares? (laughs) I want to be peaceful. I want to be happy my mind as I walk through my day. Another reflection that I'll offer to you is well, 
Suzuki San, uh, Roshi San Hoitsu, he's also a, a Roshi in China, I mean in Japan, um, I bought at a, 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 a brush, brushwork it was, uh, with calligraphy, the, the, the um, onion drawing, I'm sorry. And it, it's a, of a, a rabbit, it's a cute little rabbit is right there in the middle, and at its paws, on the in front of its right paw, are two carrots. And then there's calligraphy. And I uh, asked my Japanese friend, what does, the what does the calligraphy mean? And he says, it means, it says, I have enough. That rabbit with his two carrots has enough. So I'd like to suggest that at the root of our papancha is the thought, I don't have enough. I don't have enough praise. I don't have enough success. I don't have enough fame. I don't have enough. I don't have enough. I don't have enough. But when you look around, what do monks have? They're the happiest people around. Got a robe, an alms bowl. They're allowed to have some medicine if they get sick. That's pretty much it. They have enough. So, there's that thought, that reflection to undercut a poncho, I have enough. Can bring some relief. I'll give you one more. <laughs> um, maybe some of these will stick, be helpful to you. I know they're helpful to me. Um, it's none of my business. What he or she said or things or business. It's their business. Their karma will play out, whatever it plays out for them. They are the heirs. They are the heirs of their words and deeds, actions. That's their business. So when somebody slights you in some way or hurts your feelings for me, None of your business what they think. That's their business. It's your business to take care of Buddha, to take care of Dharma, to be here now, to be with our true self, to be with our most intimate experience, our biggest experience. Buddha is your father. Sangha is your family. Okay, I guess that's it for the night. <laughs>